A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Hi, it's Mind Rolling. We're here for a celebration of sorts. 300, they told me, 300 podcasts. This is the 300th podcast. And I said, well, I can't do a podcast. That's the 300th podcast without David. Hi, David. Um, good afternoon. <laughs> um, could have done it without me because I only did half more because you've been doing them more lately okay so maybe i've done a total of um you know 150 or something yeah so i've done half of them yeah so, that ain't nothing no it's it's a it's a lot of work <laughs> and no pay that's what he was just telling me there's a lot of work and no pay what do you got me doing this for well i said because of love people love you well Look, it's good to not get paid sometimes because then it's a pure, you know, thing. There's no agenda. Yeah, but no, it's good to get paid, okay? And we're going to find a way. Um, as, as soon as your new book is done, we're going to hawk it here like crazy. Um, if it goes the way it's going, call me 2038. <laughs> Uh, hey, so everybody, no, the reality is I could do I, this. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, um, <laughs> but 300 is great. Okay. It is. It's a milestone. That's for sure. Uh, and, and I could not do this, do the 300th podcast, the broadcast without David. Everybody knows that it would have been stupid. And, um, and I'm going to be smart. Uh, and the other thing is, is everybody, when, and you can probably tell this by the, the tenor of these podcasts that we've done so many of together and with other people as well, uh, it is so comfy doing this with David. It's just, uh, you know, it's phenomenal. So I, I never have to think, oh, geez, I got to get myself together, any of that shit. So it's, Anyhow, thanks for being here. That's all I got to say. I mean, I put on a nice shirt. Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> That's my way. Lovely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's think back a little bit. I, I mean, you know, not to do a lot of uh, reminiscing. Um, but um, the way that this thing started, David and I were together. Uh, uh, and, and he came to Asheville where I was, where I have been. And uh, 
we just got a couple of we got a couple of different studios and we went in because we didn't know nothing. I mean, I only knew how to go in and into a studio and record, you know, do a radio show. That's I wasn't right. familiar with the self podcasting. I remember now. Sorry. Um. So we just went in there and really we just ad libbed, kind of telling our stories of how we became. Uh, we became aware that there is a path and there is a way for our, as Krishnas calls it, miserable asses to be saved. Oh. <laughs> and uh, Mr. so, Mister Cheerful, yeah, he fits in with where you know with your, um, shall we say, sometimes not completely light-filled perspective. I, you know. Okay. What? No, I, I think I'm always cheery. <laughs> okay. Hey, everybody, if you could have been uh, offline with us before this started, okay, it wasn't cheery at all. Well, we my, had, modem went out. my modem was out. Yeah, I know. It was a horrible event that drove us both crazy. Um, so, but after we kind of told our stories, we embarked on engaging other people and finding out what their stories were in terms of how they realized there was a path to follow at all and what happened subsequently in their lives. And that became the, the thread by which most of these podcasts are, uh, are knit, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, really getting people's stories. Yeah, I think that is the... The thing, because early on in the experience of doing these with you, I, I think you came up with the, um, the sort of kernel core of what it should be, which was um, uh, that path you mentioned only um, uh, articulated via direct experience rather than something that was learned, you know, sort of obliquely or remotely. But so, it, at least in those that we did together at first, we were talking about things that had happened that we were we experienced, and um, that were transformative, and the fuel for a lifetime of uh, of trying to um, live out that or gr even grasp it and then live your life. And I think that's what's been going on um, in these three hundred podcasts. I mean, I listened to ones that I wasn't. Then you've interviewed and conversed rather than just interviewed with so many, you know, really lucid um, storytellers. Mm. So I think you're right. So you combine storytellers and direct experience, and you have more of a, I think, a relatable thing for most people who work and go to work and come home and are tired or not, you know, and then wake up and job. Um, completely dharmic remain that way but um it's it's a it's a trial, it's a mm. trial. so who's top of your list in terms of the people that we talk to oh, oh that's a good question um well joseph goldstein uh but i'm biased because you know i, I almost didn't care what he said because of <laughs> the depth of his um study and wisdom an ability to communicate that wisdom in ways that are really original and 
amazing. So Joseph and um, Gellick Rinpoche, who, who passed on very shortly after we, we talked to him, so that was a nice thing to catch, because uh, I'm not sure he did that many podcasts, really. Um, and, um, and so no. did Shamdas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, who is a brother of ours from India, yeah. Yeah. American, who was with us in India and so on, and was an amazing, amazing guy. And literally within a couple of months, I believe, uh, he had a, an accident in India and left his body. So, yeah, that, those, those two things that, that happened so closely together in terms of the person passing soon after we talked to him, those are pretty um, significant mileposts, talk about mileposts for, for both of us, right? Right. I mean, I think the stuff that comes to your head quickly on answering your question is probably important because those are the ones that are you know, jumping out. Sultram Alioni um, and her, her, her stuff about dealing with demons and confronting it and even enjoying the process of, of coming to terms with your demons was incredibly... Feeding your demons, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and remember, she did a, and she led us through a meditation of yes. uh, exactly that. And I mean, and not a two-minute thing. It was like a longer process. It was really powerful. Yep, uh, we should uh, make note of that in uh, in the show notes here. That's for sure. John Halifax, uh, always a complete job. Listen. Uh, because not only because of her grasp of um, you know awakening, but just her 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 humanity and humor and realness, and you know I just think that's you know that can't be bought. That was so great, such an honor to do that with her. I thought mm. I know you know her better than I do, but um, I really value her so much. And what about our other, our, uh, Sharon, you talked about Joseph. I mean, Sharon, who has been so important to, to me uh, as a teacher and friend for so many years, I, and, and Jack Cornfield as well. Those guys really formed a backbone of who we interrelated with uh, from earliest days. Yes, yes. And, you know, um, on the other sort of part of this is, you know, Duncan. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the who was relatively unknown when we, we talked to him. Um, and unlike so many times in life, particularly in the realm of show business, when someone says, well, I'm about to do an HBO series, you know. And then he did it. Yeah. But I, I mean, and, and Pete was pretty well known, actually, uh, when, we, when we met up with him, but not, not HBO level. Um, but Duncan is the reason why this all exists. It's the reason that Be Here Now Network exists. It's the reason that I started doing the initial podcasts, which were just uh, introducing Ramdas talks and then doing some live podcasts with him, meaning contemporary. And then you and I deciding to go ahead and, and, uh, and use mind rolling as a way for us to get more together, really. That was one of the big reasons, have fun, you know. And uh, that certainly happened. So Duncan was the catalyst. I call him the podcast guru. And he winces. But uh, you know, now he doesn't wince anymore. He's becoming so big in his boots, Duncan. Uh, so. 
Uh, yeah, Duncan was a catalyst for sure for this. Okay, I have a, th this is what I would consider, Dave. Uh, I didn't tell you about this. Uh, I don't know, if you're having a celebration, you, you know, you want to have some prasad, right? Which is the, the gift of sacred food. And it's not always, you know, an apple or a, a, a piece of pie. It sometimes is just a story. Yeah, so a celebration, I, I've got something. And David, I, in the process of going through some of our archives, uh, someone handed me, or actually, no, that's not totally true. In the process of going through archives for a book that we are doing, Love Server Member Foundation Publishing is going to do a book uh, in hopefully in the near future, maybe next year, that is people's stories of meeting Neem Karoli Baba after he left that body in 1973. And I happened to go through some letters and a letter that was written to Ramdas in, uh, when, oh, I don't know, in the late 70s, I think, or maybe early 80s, something like that. Anyhow, I had never seen this before, David. This, it's from a person who lives in Holland. Okay. Now it's, it's a, it's a talk about a story. It's a, it's an extraordinary story. And many of you go, this is a fantasy story. And I would say, I can't tell you how many of these stories I have heard. All right. And, um, so here it goes. Okay. One day in 1956, I was, uh, and for everyone's reference, we met Maharaji, or at least some of us, as early as the end of 1970, okay? And so it's the early 70s that we were with him. One day in 1956, I was alone in the park playing with my bicycle. I was nine years old and happy. I wanted to be alone, so I sought lonely places to play. Suddenly, I felt somebody was there, which I didn't like, so I wanted to leave. I looked around and I saw a man half naked smiling at me. He was more or less not physically present because he was fading and coming back again in my eyes. He asked if I could see him and I said yes. I also said, are you not cold without clothes? Because it was rather cold, but he said, no. I'm okay. The conversation, by the way, took place in Dutch, my language. Right? Well, I said to him, the police might arrest you when they see you like this. Then he looked scared, disappeared, and came back with a blanket around him. I said, oh, that's not enough. They'll see you wear nothing under the blanket and still arrest you. Then he disappeared again and came back in a nice-looking robe. <laughs> I was rather fixed on certain ideas, I must say. He was very friendly, and we chatted about this and that. And then he said something like, would you like me to be your guru? Okay, this is nine-year-old Dutch kid in 1956, okay? I know you. You have been my child before. I said, I don't remember this. I did understand about reincarnation, though. I don't know. He said, you will remember. Then he said, good, maybe 
what, what must I do? I said, he said, wait here and I'll call you. And he vanished. About two or three minutes later, I heard him talking to me in my head. However, I had completely forgotten our previous conversation. So it was new to me again. He said, come to such and such a place, about 300 uh, kilometers from where the first talk took place, where I still was. I said, what person are you? Are you a demon? He said, no, I'm a Swami. And he gave me a name, which unfortunately I have forgotten too. I said, well, I am not sure if a Swami is not a demon. And he laughed and we talked some more. And finally, I agreed to come, but was very scared he might be bad. When I came to the place where he was, he came out together with another boy. This time they were more clearly visible, as if on a less, re less refined astral level. He said, do you know this boy? I said, no. He said, he's your... Uh, he's your friend. You know each other. I felt very happy by seeing him as, as, as if I met an old friend, but I didn't remember him. His name was Ravi, and he studied Rig Veda. All of a sudden, I knew that it existed. He said, now my name, he said, the man said to me in, in the robe, my name is Maharaji or Babaji, and he told me to... Uh, touch his feet. Ravi demonstrated. I refused. I said, why do you want this? Are you a king, perhaps? Then he said, smilingly, yes, I am the king of India. Then I agreed to do it, and I asked, are you going to see our queen, Juliana? And he said, no, I came for you. I'm not happy to say that I resisted him, I finally didn't want to be his disciple. They went away, and I was alone again, and soon after I forgot the whole story completely. This is crazy, right? Years later, having completely forgotten the experience, which I only now can recall since about a year now, I had another rendezvous with someone related, quote-unquote, to Maharaji. I think it was 1974. I was a sailor on leave in Holland, visiting Amsterdam. I was in a street with a lot of bars. Across the street, I saw a Westerner in white Indian clothes, narrow white trousers, white long jacket, and white turban. Walking on the pavement, he attracted my attention because I could see a serenity and purity not of this world. He was a thin man gray hair, mid-age. He saw me and immediately crossed the street to greet me. I was standing still. He said, why have I come here to you? I said, I don't know. You tell me. I liked him right away. He said, ah, yes. Now I know it's about your guru. I'm sorry to say that he has left his body. Didn't you know that? I said, no, I have no guru. This must be a mistake. How can someone who does not exist die? He said, you have a guru, but you don't know. To me, this was all rubbish, a mistake, but I liked the man, so I invited him for a drink. We were in front of a bar, and I took him inside and ordered beer. I gave him uh, the beer, but he said, I don't take alcohol. I said, well, I don't think this is very strong, and it's good for the spirit. So he accepted it, took a sip, and spit it out immediately. 
He said, I have, uh, I, is this what you drink? He said, I had been rude to him and he felt sorry. So I tried to make it up with a soft drink, which he accepted. I asked him how he had come to call on me this way. And he said, well, sometimes when I take LSD, I can go to other places immediately to call on people who need me. And he asked the name of the city we were in. I said, Amsterdam. I asked his name and he said, Ramdas. But as I recall, he was giggling a little. Also, he made his turban disappear after a while, which made me a little confused. He went away soon after, but he finished his drink. And if I remember well, at this time, I didn't think of this much and I forgot for a long time. Only in 1983, I read Miracle of Love, Ramdas's book, but didn't remember anything until about a year ago, 1986. So this was written in the mid-80s. I began to put bits and pieces together, and I bought Miracle of Love to check on a few things. And then I said to myself, when I hear of Ramdas coming to Holland, I would like to go see him, which I now have done. What kind of crazy story is that? I mean, this is like not, you know, I hear a lot of this kind of thing happening in in the West, uh, not in the West, in America, I should say, and certainly not, uh, and in Europe, but more in America, and certainly only of after he left, you know, I mean, 73. All of the experiences seem to happen post that. I've never heard of anybody as a child in Holland getting approached by Maharaji. I mean... So that blew my mind. I can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, not to be disrespectful, but it's it's sort of um, reminiscent of various kinds of stories that people have told about meeting people from other planets. You know, when Mm, they had an experience when they were six and they saw a light, etc. Of course, it's not really comparable. But there are cases where children experience things and parents, mm. friends, you know, laugh at them, and probably have had more than we think. But to have one like that, and then to retroactively put it together, I mean, I've never, I'm not sure I've ever heard anything. Yeah, I've never heard that. I mean, because the, the only thing I've heard similar to that, in a complete, but in a different way, though, was with Dada Mukherjee, right? Right. When he got Maharaji when he was a young man, but he was, you know, he was more like 20 years old or something, um, 21, and Maharaji gave him a mantra. He didn't say he was his guru. He gave him a mantra, and he didn't care about stuff like that. Dada didn't, and he went and did it. But he did it because he honored his family, who were very spiritual, religious. And then, literally, 30, I would say 30, 35 years later, maybe even more, is when Maharaji appeared in Allahabad when Dada was teaching economics at Allahabad University and happened to go to a house where Maharaji was. And the first thing he said, he's still doing the mantra. So that, the time span, the, you know, Maharaji approaching some, somebody who had no idea and didn't care about having a guru. You know, it, it's not, it's not possible to find the words to, to express how that affects me at any rate. You know, the, when you hear that, it blasts away all the, so, 
everything. <laughs> it just it's like a, an explosion in, in your consciousness because to realize that um, the Mahasiddha, beyond time and space, able to go still in anywhere, have an effect upon the family of devotees and don't even know the devotees when they're children, and then return. You know, it's so completely fascinating. It's overwhelming because you know that he wrote that in '86, right? Yes. Yeah. Heard of him? Yep. He write to No. And, and he finally saw him, I guess, in the end to to tell him this. But this was a letter that he had written him, which we have as part of the archives. And I ju I just happened to I was attracted to it, and and then I you know I couldn't believe it. I mean, the reality that anything can happen is is uh, so true. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hang on a sec. Um. You know, what, what you call that an epiphany. I mean, if there's anything as an epiphany, that's it. The whole story, not not just it is precise because it, it it is it just changes your head around so heavily quickly to hear about these um, cities and to know that people experience them who are not even ready to talk about spirituality or the path or dharma or anything, just a kid. And he appeared to him. He was a little fuzzy at first, faded in and out. Then I think you said when he came back with the boy, he was much more... Yeah, you know, visible. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, it's a mystery to those of us that haven't reached that stage of, you know, enlightenment. Yeah, but, you know... Even more than that, for me, this kind of thing is is um, it the kind of caring that um, a being like this has. It's, it's just extraordinary that how that works. I mean, to an individual, from a being like this to an individual who had nothing to know. It's not like he was in India, even you know where his family had been with Maharaji or something. Uh, it's, it's just extraordinary, just the kindness, caring, compassion that the act would happen. I mean, it is within the law, certainly. It, in other words, his karma was there to have this happen, obviously. But yeah. still, it's, it's pretty miraculous. Hey, do you know, um, do you remember when we did an interview with Ramdas and it was centered around honesty. You remember that? I do. I do. Yeah. Well, I found again with all this archival stuff, some like coming up because we're doing some shipping of different things. I found the original manuscript. Okay. Of this interview. Have you even, you know, have you even, I have, I recently, Oh, really? months ago was looking for a document and and found it actually yes it's called the something of honesty yeah i don't even have the cover sheet so i don't even know yeah the something of honesty quite long did it in 2000 and yeah no it's a lot of great stuff in here yeah um yeah so uh, i was just anyhow there was something really good in it 
that I thought would be fun to talk about. Uh, um, around awareness, you know, so that's, you know, back to the, our main subject in terms of the different ways to practice using awareness. Um, so he, he talks about, uh, he says, I'll have an addiction. And then as my awareness gets stronger, which I'm cultivating through all my practices. So that is the point. That's the central, um, shall we call it benefit of these, pra- the most immediate benefit of these practices is awareness. And there's something else with uh, Mingyur Rinpoche that I found too, Dave. It's pretty great. Um, I notice that I'll still respond to the desire and the pattern, but when I'm in it, I begin to feel its emptiness because part of me is in it, still milking it for all I can get. But there's another part of me that I've been cultivating that's just sitting there and saying, lovely, isn't it? Yeah, great. I've watched that awareness starting to short circuit the whole process, getting back earlier and earlier until as that thing that awakens the greed starts in, it starts to thicken my consciousness. It's as if I'm falling out of grace into the desire system. And the minute you identify with the desire system, which really what's, which is really what starts the whole sequence of greed, the minute you identify with the desire, you will feel the finiteness of the game. You've narrowed it down. You've imprisoned yourself again. Identification with the desire is imprisoning, and yet you have desire. The question is, how can you be involved in life with desires and still not be attached to them? How can you be fully human with all the stuff without the identification? The big question of the day. What we're talking about is awareness. And awareness as at its freest sense is this spacious, vast thing that includes everything. What it does not include is pacing after thoughts and judgments about oneself. And how can you be fully human with all this stuff without the identification? Okay. What's the answer? Well, in the Mahamudra practice, mm. they talk about the fact that despite the fact that you're training in the art of recognizing illusion and delusion, that karma still holds in what they call a so that. There is, shall we say, from one of a better expression, a right and a wrong decision available every microsecond. And, and, and that that exists, we have to deal with it and we can do it. Nevertheless, simultaneously, Zogchen said, natural mind is just there. And with the ordinary mind, as they call it sometimes, you know, that, but it does not, it does not diminish the possibility of being present on the level and dimension that you are actually mostly in. So the two mm-hmm. things simultaneous, the, 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 the idea of emptiness, that awareness has no eyes, has no nose, has no mm-hmm. nothing, empty cognizance, that that exists, but it is not the engine that drives much of our, much of our behavior. Because we find us in this lifetime having to, you know, do so many things all the time that seem kind of why why are we doing this why aren't we just sitting in meditation all the time and not having to take on that karma of earning a living 
supporting a family, having children, having a house, paying the mortgage, etc., etc., watching stupid things on Netflix. We do it. I do it. Um, but he says a very interesting thing in that piece you just read, which he says, the more it happened, the more finite it immediately appeared to be. It's not an exact quote. But I think Ramdas was suggesting that as you repeat the practice, the transparency of the thing becomes more and more obvious. So yeah. it is still a Zogchen thing. It still exists, but because of the impermanence of this level, it will continue to exist and not exist, exist and not exist. And the impermanence pervades our experience. And so the finiteness of these little things that we're so bothered about um, actually acquire less power over us. He says that in what you just read, which is that gradually, but rather effectively, we become more conscious. I was thinking that in Zogchen also there's this thing where they 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 sort of compress all their all their stuff with two words. Watch yourself. Hmm. It amazes not amazing, it, it amuses me because where I come from in England, um, when when someone wants to really tell you to stop doing what you're doing at any level, they would say, Hey, mate, watch yourself, love. Watch yourself. <laughs> Usually meaning don't say that again to me. Don't do it. And don't speak to my wife that way. And don't look at my girlfriend. Watch yourself, mate. Stop looking at her. You know, it's a very, very kind of low chakra <laughs> expression. But in a way, it relates. Because the, the Cockney or the, even the North Country person is saying to someone, you're not being conscious of what you should be doing in front of me. And, of course, it doesn't mean that in what we're talking about. But it does mean watch your behavior. You know, don't think you're ever going to get rid of certain desire systems. Things. I think the, the key thing, actually, uh, that's useful for us all here is that it's again the repetition as as you just talked about the repetition of it allows one one's awareness to start to short circuit the process so it starts to cut you're not following as long following that storyline fantasy whatever you're not reacting quite as strongly because because the time is cut down I think short circuit, that's a great word, right? Short circuit is what happens when you, you know, as diligently as possible. In, in other words, the continuity of day-to-day -day practice uh, is important. And it doesn't matter what it is. It right. can, it's, it's anything that is done with this kind of intention. Uh, so, but just, so there's always, there's that hope and belief and faith and trust that the short circuiting will go on at some point period so uh yeah that's a great thing it's, the ramdas um, words you, you read is sort of crucial very i mean it's something very crucial that's because that practice is the practice begins to liberate you from from yeah. attacked, as it were, although you're not really being attacked. So whatever the process is, 
whereby you fall into these practice, not practices, habits, habitual patterns, disturbing both thoughts, emotions, and actions. That you will still fall into that, but you will more rapidly be able to go, I am, I'm just, you know, getting in a cab now. I'm not going to let this continue. Have you uh, had some issues lately with falling into uh, a habitual pattern? Yes. Okay, fess up. Yes, and, and you know, at this stage of the game, you, you sort of tend to think you wouldn't be, but that's... Right, how, that's really a fallacy. <laughs> it's tricky, you know, it's tricky because as soon as you think you're not subject to it, then something comes up very quickly somehow. To, and before you know it, you're back there. You're back there. It happens. It's not like it doesn't happen. It's part of your reincarnational DNA memory that's somehow coming back and you're doing it again and you know you're 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 getting involved with someone that you absolutely know is trouble but you still mm. and and that's a big one and i'm not just talking about relationships i'm talking about any level of getting involved with anybody on this planet that sometimes even though you must try and and uh, respect and love the soul of every single being sentient there are sometimes you fall into things which are going to cause problems in your karma and those of your family maybe because you didn't use your practice or you didn't practice enough. You did, you did, it, it, it's really tricky because, you know, I mean, I can't imagine people who don't have something, some catalyst, something that helps them uh, stop going crazy all the time. In other words, you go crazy if, the, if your desire systems run amok. You know, you do. You want everything, you want more of everything. You've got something, you want another thing. You see someone else with something, you want that. I mean, you get it, you don't like. I mean, it's just endless, isn't it? But the practice, as he says, uh, is the only answer. But as you said, it's not a question of saying you've got to meditate every day. There may be another way for you that is just as you know, effective hmm. from the habitual patterns. What was your habitual pattern that you just ran into? Oh, um, a degree of skepticism uh, that was quite high about a project. That's one thing. And voicing that in a way that was, when I really thought about it, was, was quite, um, could have been quite harmful to the project. Mm -hmm. And certainly not compassionate towards the person I was talking towards because he didn't happen to believe that. So when I said it, uh, when I articulated that I was doubtful about an aspect of it, I can't go into it in, in too much more detail, but that, that, you know, out of privacy. But I will say that I, I didn't go as bad as I would have done 10 years ago. <laughs> in other words, after a phone call, I sat there and just thought, damn, why was I so negative about this? And you don't know any more than he does whether it's going to be this or that. So, you know, I called him back. Uh, not immediately, but fairly quickly, and said, you know, I was in a bad mood or something, and, 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 and kind of did something I didn't used to do. You know, I would just let things slide, really. And, oh, he'll get over it now. You know, it wasn't so bad. But, I, you know, and relationships to me are the most treacherous when it comes to this. Um, you know, that, that you fantasize. And you don't think the fantasy is actually a, desire, a part of a desire system. You, just think, that you think that it's a mechanism that, that, that enriches the experience 
So the experience becomes so intense that it's a joyous mm. time. And then only later will you realize that the fantasy corrupted the experience and made something that was not authentic. Mm. That's been my biggest experience in life in terms of making mistakes, which is thinking, oh my God, this person is the answer to all my prayers. And, and then realizing that <laughs> she wasn't. Mm. And years sometimes, decades actually. And uh, <laughs> I think that that's pretty weird that someone who's meditating and doing yoga and reading about Ramana Maharshi and, and about, you know, Tulku Orgy and Rinpoche should also fall into a connection with someone and be completely blind. Like blind, 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 not seeing the truth, not seeing what's really happening here, what the agendas are, what the potential consequences are. Forget our consequences, you know. And again, back to Ramdas is such an astute, I mean, he's the one that taught me about this more than anyone, which was if you bother to find that practice that will keep you watching your, your thoughts and your tendencies, it will work. It will work. It may not eradicate immediately, but it makes it it makes it finite. Yeah. So that yeah. you oh, okay, I'm not gonna do that again. Yeah, but again, in the moment to moment, the short circuit happens in the most uh, in the smallest ways. It just takes it's just tiny, tiny, tiny steps. Like that short circuit stopping the this is what's been happening for me over the years. It's it has stopped the duration of reaction or following or following projections. You were just talking about that. Fantasies. It short circuits the duration of our chasing these thoughts, these emotions. It just completely short circuits it. So you, you're no longer, you know, it, and the empty part comes in. Because you, you start to see the emptiness of trying to gratify yourself that way. And then you let go. And you, what was the, what was the thing these guys say in, uh, in, in England when you're taking a look at his gal and all that? Watch yourself, love. Watch yourself. And they will use, That's it. They will use the word love extraordinarily ironically. Because the oh, next would be, love. listen, darling, I'm just going to punch you in the fucking face. That's <laughs> the next thing they say. <laughs> even though, and, and even though that's horrible, of course, it is kind of like what happens when you get into this sort of practice that cuts stuff, short circuits, because it does, it's a threat to it. It goes, stop. You, you've done enough now. You've, you've yelled at that person. <laughs> Why did you yell to begin with? But please stop. And it is a, it's almost a force. It's almost a deity of a kind. Mm. A, a wonderfully kind but extremely forthright deity that says, yeah. watch yourself, darling. You're about to descend into some, one of those, just one of those 84,000 disturbing things. Mm. Not a good thing. You know no better. You know better. Stop, stop, stop. And, you know, you go, okay, I'll try. <laughs> That's what we got to call this, this episode. Watch yourself, love. <laughs> yes. Okay. We got to do that because that's a good, uh, we've come up with a slogan for our 300th, Mind rolling episode. Well, I mean, just to quote from Chokni, again, you know, I've got a couple of notes here about it. It says, Chokni. Yeah, he says, yeah. Um, well, basically, in that book, he's saying, don't waste the bardo of this life immersed in the eight worldly concerns. Now, I'm not going to 
go through the eight worldly concerns because I don't remember, but I know what they are kind of. It's like, you know, wealth, you know, tons of food, lots of sex, great movies. And, you know, <laughs> saying that meditation does that, but in fact, the meditation, within the meditation, we learn the dynamic of fortune. Concerns. And that means that in those intense moments when you're actually not watching cable television and you're not, you know, lusting after someone, which leaves about one minute a day. But in that moment, <laughs> in that moment, you are, in fact, watching yourself mobilize. You're not watching yourself like, you know, like Facebook surveillance. It's not... It's, it's not, not many self, not little, little self. It's the big, yeah. big self that's not judging. It's from the intuitive heart space. Let's make that clear. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I was, I, I was made these notes in the last couple of days about this book that we talked about before in the, in the last podcast we did together, the Bardo Guidebook. And even though it's about how to die, really, uh, a lot of it is about, you know, learning to not waste time. Mm. Uh, House of the, mm-hmm. and, and then he says, the quote is, the most important bardo is that of this life. Everything that comes after depends on this life, the life you're leading at this moment, not some past life, not the future life. You don't know what the future life is, but you do know that what you're doing now will affect your entire um, presence in, in, the, in the, the room of, of inter- eternity. You know, that, that you can't not, having done it, you can't not undo it. So at best, it, it is a teaching because, it, you know, they Zogchen Masters also say that all of these troubles are also Vajra. You know, right. the dire and the bad things and the suffering are all uh, a doorway to some yeah. kind of Dharmakaya, mm-hmm. some Pokakaya, whatever it is, when you can actually see that your preoccupations and behaviors are in fact, um, shall we say, uh, entirely about your own gratification. Uh, if you can see that, you can probably um, use them, move to higher ground. Yep, transformative yep. material. No, lotus, no mud, no lotus, right? Roshi Halifax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you. You know about, of course, the movie that we got coming out, the arc of Ramdas's life and teachings called Becoming Nobody, that was directed by Jamie Cato. Yes. And uh, so, again, looking through, I have gotten some beautiful archives, Dave, and I've, I've been looking through them. That's how I found that amazing story of the little Dutch boy. Um, and I came across something that, that, I think everything we're talking about, and we're just talking about awareness. We're just talking about the way that uh, the practices can lead to the short circuiting, our desire systems, etc. Um, all of this is in in the spirit and in the um, intention to become nobody. And of course, what is becoming nobody? Meaning, you are no longer fixated on the little self. So you're in touch with the kindness, compassion, and love. And the only thing there is to do is to be able to radiate that to other people's service and start thinking about someone other than yourself. So 
becoming nobody is, uh, you know, this is our byword here over the next uh, few months as this movie goes out in the, in the fall to theaters. So I found this thing, and this is from Ram Dass. It's, it, he did this, it's a transcript of a talk. I just happened to find this, and this is from 1972. So this is just after he came, we came back from India in the middle of 72. Maharaji was still in his body. So he's talking about everybody got their own karmic predicament. There's nothing you can do about it. It's so poignant. Most of the time you keep looking at everybody and you know they're not who they think they are. And you want to run up and scream and shake them and say, hey, don't you realize you're not who you think you are? But if you do, it freaks everybody because they don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Not even the highest beings here want to hear it. Everyone here, as high as we are, we still want to think we're somebody. And when we get near being nobody, it gets scary. Very scary. It's far out. What has to die in this whole trip what has to die in is every way you thought you knew yourself to be. That's all that all has to go. The way I can experience it now, it's like the experiencer is dying or the experiencer and the experience are merging. So there's no longer the experience of an experience. Right? So, you know, that he talked about you know, we all are hard working at becoming somebody. And then the reality of becoming nobody really scares is, is a scary thought because then, you know, it's like being on acid and suddenly your identity goes away and you go, Ooh, God, no, you know, that kind of a thing. So in light of that, I've been reading, you know, this is my favorite book in the whole world right now. Do you have this book? Dave? Yes, I do. It's great. Yeah, of course you do. So he talks about this, which is which Ramdas talks about in the movie with the director Jamie quite a bit, and it's around the idea of how we all have masks, right? I love this concept. Uh, he says we need to develop some confidence in order to know that dropping the mask is not an act of suicidal madness, but of renewal. Talk about that. Is that's a major bright light you know just turning it around like that it's not suicidal in other words we are not going to lose ourselves when we lose that mask when we let go of that as, as ramdas said before of who we think we are and he said i once watched a video this is minjur rinpoche a video of children making plaster masks of their faces from strips of new newspaper dipped in flour and water. When the mask dried, they took them off and painted them in colorful designs and reattached them to their faces with strings. The children's delight was contagious. I recall thinking, just remember to remove the masks. You added them, you can subtract them. Don't forget. The same holds true for all of us. I have been told by psychologists that personality traits of young children between the age of three to six develop into lifelong patterns. These patterns then get reinforced by interacting with an environment that reflects and reinforces these traits. Or we could say, you build a mask 
and then you grow into that mask. In another 10 to 15 years, you fully inhabit the mask with collaboration, uh, collaboration, he calls it, with from uh, friends and family. It becomes, quote unquote, the real you, but not quite. On some gut level below, below the thinking mind, we know there is more to our being than the masks that hide our true selves. In the middle of the night, a gnawing low-level disturbance leaves us doubting our own authenticity. But often we just do not know what to do and, up, and end up doing nothing. The process of training the mind peels off the masks. We are not robots programmed to imitate ourselves. But we do not know how to use our creative reserves to let go of rote behaviors, even those that drive us crazy. Even those that drive us crazy. Being defensive, uptight, lazy, irritable, or self-conscious, these behaviors are not in our DNA and do not have to continue their destructive influence. They can die before we do. We will survive the death of impersonating ourselves and of wearing masks. We will not just survive, but flourish. I mean, okay, is that the greatest thing you ever heard? I'm, yes, <laughs> actually, it's extremely. I, those words, you know, can, they're so promising as well. They're not just a didactic thing. Okay, do your practice to peel your mask. It's it's flourishing words like you can flourish if you let go a little bit i don't mean you i mean us if we could just let go a little bit we could flourish yeah i i'm taking this is all i'm taking to heart because you know i asked you about what you had experienced in you know getting knocked into a habitual pattern or whatever and i have myself uh being seen it very rawly because as you know i and I've talked to, it's not like I'm keeping it a secret, but going through transition and major transitions in my life. And uh, it's causing me to be able to see through these, these masks, you know, in a way that uh, maybe you don't get to see through it quite that way uh, when things are going a little bit better. So uh, these words from someone like uh, Yongi Mingyur Rinpoche uh, are so. Um, I could only think promising. It can happen. You know, you can remove these masks. And it's not like you're going to die. Right? Yes. As tough as it is, it is redeeming. And, and that's very hard to grasp or in the, um, some kind of tearing off, some sort of change. You know that that is not your desire, but it has to happen, and that's when the chips are down. And it is again that thing. It's so hard to kind of go there. I am not this this twittering person here. Who's you know? I'm not this person that. And yet, when you say that, you've really got to mean it, because otherwise, it's like I'm not this person, but I'm going to go on being this person, which happens all the time. It happens all the time. But I, I tend these days to be very, very, very sort of um, observant 
because it's a matter of, you know, that when you're 25 years old and you make mistakes, you go, okay, I'll try not to do that again. Then you do them at 35 and 45, 50. You go on doing them. But eventually there does come a moment because of this finite incarnation when you understand that you can't waste time continuing to keep putting on these different masks. Because there are many different ones. It's not like there's one mask. You know, the defensive mask, there's the aggressive mask, there's the, e the mask that comes out of pure ego, there's the mask that comes out of greed and jealousy. These are masks. Yeah. These. Jealousy, anger, greed, yeah. attachment. This yeah, is so. why in ancient theatrical traditions, I often wondered why did the Greeks wear masks and why did the Elizabethans wear masks and what was that all about? Why, why weren't they just showing themselves as humans? But their deeper hmm. sort of implication was. You erring humans, Sophocles would say, or, or you know, those guys, uh, you're living behind masks, and it will be your undoing. Because those masks are meeting other masks, an old kind of karma, thick karma is being baked. So you have to take off the mask in order to stop that, that cooking process. And that, you know, that, what was Greek tragedy all about? It was about these subconscious horrendous urges that came from we don't know, but that made us act in a manner that was neither compassionate nor thoughtful. And it's tragic that, you know, Sophocles and those guys wrote tragedies. Why did they do that? A lot of it was to do with this. It was to do with people not acting out of compassion and out of a soul place, but out of a purely ego place. That me movie was their whole life. So, you know, Hamlet's father died badly and Macbeth died badly. And, and, you know, Othello died badly. Why? What was that all about Shakespeare? It was because they were living lies. They were living greed and jealousy. And there was no penetration of that into mm -hmm. the awareness that we're now talking about. And I believe Shakespeare was enough of an advanced you know, sort of being, that he could see into people and see why these awful, convoluted things happen. Wars, family hatred. Uh, and I, I mean, people have them now, you know? It's not like, you know, okay, that was Shakespeare, now we're now and we're cool. You know, we're, we're still responding to other human beings in weird ways. You know, mm -hmm. someone I know rather well recently said to me that, well, you know, this refugee thing, this immigrant thing, you can be as compassionate as you want, but we can't let it go on like it's going on, so there's got to be some deterrent. Okay, that sentence alone is a mask, a pure individuated fear of the other. And that's what's going on now, and I think someone said to me yesterday, and I think it's quite a wise statement, that this, this experience we're having in 2019, since 2015, actually, has been so horrendous politically that it has brought out in us an awareness of that darkness. And it's helped us, you know, it's so ironic, it's helped us not hate the hateful. So that, you know. It helped <laughs> us at least to move on a path to be aware of what we're doing because we are all hating the hateful to yeah. some degree. Yes. Even we those of us that are, quote yeah. unquote, been on a spiritual path uh, for a very long time. So it's, yes, that, that darkness is bringing up our darkness. Absolutely. 
So. But it's also, I mean, I'm not, again, what the, I guess the Dzogchen masters call it superficial level. It's also bringing out in this incarnation people's best, best, because they for themselves, I do not want to act like that. Mm. To my sister, yeah. to my cousin, to my friend. And I, I do believe that's happening. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely true. Yeah. You know, there's some yeah. kind of fine design there, which yeah. we're not, we are not advanced enough to say, this is why those guys are running the country. Or or this goes back to Ramdas quoting Maharaji saying, Ramdas, don't you know it's all perfect? And that's exactly what you're saying. We do not know that, but we are seeing glimpses perhaps of the positive things that are happening as a result of this kind of darkness. Um, I'm going to switch gears because we're, we're pretty much near the end of, a, of the show. And I want to thank you for doing this. I think we, we came up with some pretty interesting stuff. You know, we've advanced through these years of uh, talking less about uh, that, uh, the me, me that, heard the bell ring and started on the path to the becoming nobody, you know, and here we are today. Uh, and I think this thing around masks is, is really cool. I have this thing, Dave. Um, you know, Stephen Levine, right? Everybody out there, I think knows, or many people do. Stephen Levine worked with Ram Dass very closely uh, around um, creating uh, dying institute uh, that uh, and they worked on many many retreats and and worked with many many people who were passing and wrote books and so on and Stephen in particular was uh, one of one of the great people who really could uh, elucidate the kinds of ideas that helped to bring dying into a okay we it's a fact of life and we all experience it at one point or another and it is not bad it is not as ramda says it is not a flaw in the system <laughs> you know so i found this thing dave and again in the archive so this is an archive show which is appropriate for 300 yep. uh, podcasts huh? oh, yeah. i found a poem stephen was a poem a poet rather as well as a writer and speaker and uh he wrote a poem called Half-Life that I think would be great to have as our ending thought for this podcast. Half-Life. We walk through half our life as if it were a fever dream, barely touching the ground. Our eyes half open, our heart half closed. Not half knowing who we are, we watch the ghost of us drift from room to room through friends and lovers, never quite as real as advertised. Not saying half we mean or meaning half we say. We dream ourselves from birth to birth, seeking some true self until the fever breaks and the heart cannot abide a moment longer as the rest of us awakens, summoned from the dream, not half caring for anything but love. 
isn't it crazy? One poem by one man can encapsulate an hour of talking about, you know, what we've been talking about, right? I mean, when I read, as I read it, I go, wow, that's exactly encapsulates our chat of the last hour. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's really amazing. Okay, Dave, that's it. Uh, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, as well as uh, check out, by the way, Dave, you know, we have wonderful uh, partner who helps sponsor what we're doing, 1440 Multiversity. They have these fantastic weekends. So go to 1440.org and, and check it out. There is just a, a plethora of fantastic uh, workshops for you to choose from. We shall see you next week on Mind Rolling. Thank you, everybody. Bye, Dave.